Well, good morning. My name is Ruth Sun. Thank you, Joe, for the introduction a little bit earlier in the service. As Joe mentioned, my wife and I and our two kids, Kim, Jacob, and Lily, we've been here for a little under two years. This is our church home. And so it's, we're really uh, thankful uh, for Orangewood, and it's a real honor for me to be your missions speaker. As Joe mentioned, I work for Redeemer City to City. Uh, about 30 years ago, a guy named Tim Keller planted a church in New York. And in his in God's grace, he was instrumental in the planning of 100 plus churches in New York City, most of them outside our denomination, for the goal of seeing the city renewed. And during that time period, we had the opportunity to start working in other global cities around the world, working with local indigenous leaders, helping them to plant churches to change their cities as well. So it's a real privilege to be a part of that organization. And I spend most of my time in the country of India, where I take a lot of trips recruiting, coaching, church planners to reach professionals in the global cities of India. I'm not going to say anything more about that, but if you want to learn more, come back tonight. I got lots of slides, pictures. It's going to be awesome. Uh, But for now, I want to talk about missions in general. We've heard in churches like this all around the world that the gospel compels missions. It empowers missions. That to the degree we connect to the love and grace and beauty of the Lord Jesus, it compels us with joy to run towards our neighbors that they might enjoy Jesus as well. We also have heard in churches like this that the absence of mission in our life, the absence of loving our neighbor is typically an indicator of our inability to connect to the lavish love of Jesus. Now, those are true statements, but they're, they're a little complex, right? I mean, they make sense on the face of it, but how's all that work? And that's what we're going to explore this morning as we look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. So I'm going to read that for us now. I'm going to pray for us and we'll dig in. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we long to see Jesus as he's displayed in this passage, the one who gives us all love, who's, who's our essential need, who's our king, the one we want to dwell in our hearts and reign within us. And we want to acknowledge that we don't have as much of him as that we would want to see. Lord, we're begging you that by your Holy Spirit, you give us power to see Jesus and find our home in him and use this sermon towards those ends. And we pray this in your blessed name. Amen. Dwight Moody may be arguably the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. If you're new to Christendom, you're not going to recognize this name. But if you've been around Christendom in North America for a while, you know there's like a Moody Press and a Moody School. And there's all these things named after him. Because in the 1800s, God used him in profound ways in North America and in Europe spreading the gospel. So that upon his death, a whole bunch of things started getting named after him. Well, during his, the rank and file of his time, during the, the meat of his work in the United States, he lived in Chicago. As you might recall, in 1871, there was the Great Fire of Chicago, and a lot of the city got burned up. 
including his home, his church, and the YMCA that was the base of his operations to impact the city of Chicago. So he traveled to New York to raise funds to rebuild the church and the YMCA. And while walking down Wall Street, he described later in a journal what it was a presence and a power in his life. And this is what he recorded in his journal. One day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God was revealed to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Wow. We're a remarkable encounter of God's presence and power. So much so that he was so overwhelmed with God's love, he was begging God to stop. Now, Moody's journal entry for a lot of us in this room is going to be confusing and challenging. Because we're like, we can have that kind of overwhelming experience with God that we'd be so overwhelmed by that we would want God to stop. How does that work? Moody's journal entry is very much like this passage we're looking at this morning. Paul's prayer can be rather confusing and challenging for us. It's confusing because Paul's asking us to pray for stuff that we already have. Christ, his fullness, and his love. Yet as we look closer at this passage, you see that Paul's challenging us to bridge the gap between what we know and what we experience. Paul wants what we know to be something that we experience. He wants to experience the truth of what we believe and be overwhelmed by it. Now, this creates a problem for many of us, doesn't it? In our average day, for many of us, we have this default mode where we're rather comfortable with that chasm between what we know and believe and what we experience. We're rather comfortable with that gap. It's not that we like that gap, but it's something we've made terms with. We're, we're rather comfortable of having a life with Christ, but without experiencing that profound power that we see often described in the scriptures or in journal entries by our heroes. See, we have this immeasurable love of power from Jesus, yet we're comfortable not drawing upon it. As if we have this bank account filled with miserable wealth of Jesus, yet we don't know that we can have access to it every day. Yet what I love about this passage is Paul offers us an immediate remedy for this. And it's spiritual renewal. Spiritual renewal is experiencing the immeasurable wealth of the love and grace of God in our deepest, most parts by the power of the Spirit. So this is what we're going to do really briefly this morning. We're going to look at a paradigm for spiritual renewal. We're going to look at the problem of spiritual renewal. We're going to look at the practice of spiritual renewal. And we're going to look at the power of spiritual renewal. So let's begin. Let's look at the paradigm for spiritual renewal. So if we're going to build out what the scriptures have to teach on spiritual renewal, the first thing we need to see from this passage is spiritual renewal is experiencing the pervasive influence of the Holy Spirit. The pervasive influence of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. Look, from 30,000 feet, we see the destination of spiritual renewal is your inner being. What does that mean? It's your deepest, most parts. We see the origination of spiritual renewal is the unmeasurable wealth of God's grace. We see that the means of spiritual renewal is the Holy Spirit himself. And we see that the outcome of spiritual renewal is to be strengthened with power. Now, 
To what ends is all the spiritual know happening? Well, we see in verse 19, one of those first things is that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now, again, going back to the confusion. On one level, if we were going through the book of Ephesians, you'd be going, wait, wait, I have the fullness of God. A ridiculous amount of times in the first chapter of Ephesians 1, I've been told I'm in Christ, I'm in Christ, I'm in Christ, I have a union with Christ. All that Jesus has, he's given to me. So what does it mean then to be filled with the fullness of God when it's already objectively true of me? But when you take a closer look, it's not talking about the objective truth, but the influence and the persuasion of the Holy Spirit. See, right now, Jesus has captured you. If you're a believer, he sealed you to him. And he is on a mission to make you more like Jesus. And right now, the Holy Spirit's raging a war with your flesh to make you more like Jesus. So when you think about yourself, if you have a little time of honest reflection, would people around you say that the Holy Spirit is having massive persuasive influence on your life? Would your spouse, your kids, your dearest friends, your boss, your coworkers, from the outside looking in, looking at the trajectory of your life the last three to four years and go, wow, this person's decision-making, this person's habits, the way this person conducts himself with me is heavily, persuasively influenced by the Holy Spirit. All right. Paul's not done messing with us. This is just the first layer of this paradigm he's building for us. Spiritual renewal is experienced a pervasive influence of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, we'll see, spiritual renewal is the existential enjoyment of God's love. Look at verse 19. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, we tend to make knowledge really rational, don't we? That word for us is a cognitive activity. It's in that realm of understanding something. But the Bible tends to be a little bit more holistic with the idea of knowledge. Now, Jonathan Edwards, he might have been the greatest evangelist and renewal initiator of, say, the 18th century. He's by far the greatest philosopher and preacher and theologian our country has ever had. He had a lot to say on this subject. And he had this great illustration on honey. He distinguishes what your mind does with honey and what your sensation does with honey. So in his sermon, he was like, okay, let's look at honey, that beautiful, golden, gooey goodness. Now your mind can look at it and go, I bet that tastes amazing. And you can build this model for how wonderful it is, but it's not until you taste honey that you know how wonderful honey is, right? It's only when you taste honey that you can go, oh, I thought I knew what honey was, but oh, this is so much better. Now I'm still new to Orangewood, and so when I first showed up here, I kept hearing, Hunger Street Tacos, Hunger Street Tacos. You've got to have some Hunger Street Tacos. And their quesadillas are amazing. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 whatever. I mean, it's related to Joe and his children. Yeah, yeah. But like, how good can it really be? But then I went to a wedding and they were catering, of course. And then I had one of their quesadillas and I was like, oh, this is really good. My mind had a model for how good it was going to be. But it wasn't until I actually tasted one of their quesadillas that I realized how great it was. Now, What Jonathan Edwards does in his sermon gets really challenging and convicting. He says there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beautiness of that holiness and grace. Ouch. I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister. 
My my theology is impeccable. I can go into great detail and knowledge and facts about the holiness and glory of God. But this, this concept undid me and continues to undo me. Oh, but to what degree do I sense the holiness and beauty of God in my hearts? What about you? Are you presently sensing the love of God? Is it an opinion of yours that God loves you? Or is it something that overwhelms you? Do you existentially existentially enjoy the magnitude of God's love for you? Do you have an opinion that he's for you? Or do you experience your deepest, most parts that his love is satisfying? It's why the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. The love of God is to be real enough for us to sense and to enjoy. Spiritual renewal is about the existential enjoyment of God's love. Again, Paul's not done messing with this. There's a third layer to this paradigm of spiritual renewal he's building for us. And that is this. Spiritual renewal is a holistic experience of the realness of Jesus. A holistic experience of the realness of Jesus. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So to dwell is to inhabit. So that Christ inhabits our hearts through faith. What does that really mean in a tangible sense? Simply what Paul's saying is that he wants Christ to become more real for you. As real as your neighbor, as real as the person sitting next to you in this worship service. Again, Jonathan Edwards, who I mentioned earlier, he had a habit to take a ride for exercise. He'd ride his horse. And he'd ride into the countryside, into the woods, where he'd get off his horse and he'd pray and contemplate. And that was almost his regular daily practice. And then he had this encounter with God, and it's recorded in his journals. This happened in 1737. And he said this, I saw the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man. His wonderful, great, full, pure, sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with the excellency great enough to swallow up thought and conception, which continued, as near I can judge, about an hour. There he is, Jonathan Edwards regularly praying, meditating, wanting to connect to the grace of God and the Holy Spirit snuck up on him. And there he was. Jesus was more real than anything in his life. Now that, that's actually objectively true for all of us. Jesus literally, his love for us is literally more real than anything else around us. But it really doesn't feel like that for most of us. Now think about the relevance for that. For most of us, our friends, our boss, our spouse, maybe our children, are far more real than the love of Jesus or his presence in our life. And then we're tossed around by those expectations and the demands of those relationships. We often obsess and worry about those conversations, those interactions, right? You know, for those of us working, you say something idiotic around your boss, you're going to worry about it for days, if not hours. You make a mistake, you're going to worry about your standing within your organization. If you have a fight with your spouse, that's going to weigh on you. Some of us, we, we don't just adore our children, we worship them. And then we care way too much about what they think of us. And so we experience our fears. We, we obsess over that dissidence. And that the absence of knowing the realness of Jesus that would root us and ground in this love creates a powerless life. 
it becomes incongruent. There's this theology over here, but our experience is over here. And so what we do is we live in those fears that we obsess over. And yet we see that spiritual renewal is a holistic experience of the realness of Jesus that anchors us in his love and grace. The fourth and final thing we see as Paul's building out a paradigm for spiritual renewal is that spiritual renewal involves seizing the magnitude of God's love in Christ. It's seizing the magnitude of God's love. Look at verse 18. That we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is a breadth and length and height and depth. Which he goes on to say of the love of Christ. Now let's think about that for a second. Comprehend is not a very compelling word, is it? You know, great, I can comprehend God's love. Sadly, this is like the worst translation of this word. The NIV got it right when it said grasp. The word literally means to take hold of, to seize. It's a proactive verb that you do. What you can see that Paul is doing in this verse is he's saying like, the love of God is this beautiful terrain and countryside and you have the opportunity to explore it, to trace it out, to understand the terrain of God's love for you and to get lost in it. And so when he says the words breadth and length and depth and height, there's volume to God's love. There's magnitude to God's love. And he wants you to get lost in it. Now think about the breadth of God's love. How wide is God's love for you? It's infinitely wide. And the scriptures all over the place try to begin to describe that as we tend to meditate on it. Think about Psalm 103. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God's love is so infinitely wide that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, our sins are infinitely removed from us. There's no connection between us and our sins. What about the length of God's love? Philippians talks about he, Jesus, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You see, the length of God's love predates your existence. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about before the very foundations of the earth, God knew you. He loved you. And even then he sent his son to die for you. And then that son will work out your salvation. He will author it. He will protect it. He will perfect it so that in its completion, you will share with his glory. What about the depth of God's love? Jesus went to the deepest places to secure our salvation. He was forsaken. On the cross, he said, my my God, why have you forsaken me? See, what happened on the cross, which we could not see as human beings, but spiritually was happening, was Jesus was forsaken that we may be given God's pleasure. On the cross, Jesus swallowed up the wrath of God deserved for all of our sins. He went to the lowest of places. He suffered hell in our place that all we might have is God's pleasure and his beauty and his joy. But think about the height of God's love. I love how 2 Peter chapter 1 describes how the glory of King Jesus, the transcendent, beautiful, holy one, that glory will be literally given to us in the new heavens and new earth. We will partake in his glory. We will share in his glory. There's no end to the height of God's love for us because all that is is he gives to us. Spiritual renewal involves seizing the magnitude of God's love. These concepts and ideas aren't meant to be enjoyed intellectually. They're meant to be devoured existentially. Spiritual renewal involves seizing the magnitude of God's love. 
So now, for all of us in this room, me included, this creates a ridiculous amount of problems, doesn't it? Right? Well, when we look at this text, we're like, oh man, okay, Rudy just gave me four layers. I think I'm failing. What do I do now? Right? And, and I had the same experience as I've been meditating on this passage for weeks. We have a problem with spiritual renewal. Rather, spiritual renewal exposes our problems. Well, one is busyness. I think our culture at this point forward has been more busy than any other culture before it. We run ridiculously fast paces. And now because of technology, we constantly keep our minds spinning. We're on the go. We're on the go. And it's like we're tanking up our soul on junk food. We're keeping ourselves so busy, we don't realize how hungry we really are. That might be one of our problems. Another one might be comfort. Uh, Probably our culture, more than any other culture in time, craves and obsesses over comfort. And one manifestation of that is safety. Whether it's uttered or unuttered, there's this intensity to be really comfortable and really safe. Let me give you an example of this. So because of what I do, I have a lot of friends and you know, they ask me to pray for things and I ask for them to pray for things. And, there's, you know, I, and I keep my prayer catalog on my iPhone and my notes. And sometimes I just kind of peruse through my prayer requests to see which ones have been answered. And as I just looked over the course of the year, the word safety came up like a gazillion times. It was almost jarring how many times the word safety came back. And then I was contrasting with the prayers given to me by the house church movement in China through various leaders I'm connected to. They're undergoing a ridiculous amount of persecution and challenges for living out the gospel, constantly under the threat of going to prison. And I noticed that all the hundreds of prayers I've perused through from them, not once are they asking for safety, but rather what they typically ask for is power to handle the challenges before them. So maybe busyness and comfort isn't the problem for you. Maybe it's ambition. Like me, you obsess over all sorts of things in this world. Fitting in, your body style, the image you're trying to portray, success. You obsess and worry over, you You put so much time and attention in fitting the circles that God has placed you. So whether it's at home or work, you have an image, a persona you're trying to build. It's somewhat false and somewhat true. And we obsess over to such a degree, there's no room for spiritual renewal in our lives. Maybe it's not ambition, maybe it's control. For some of us, we love to keep our spirituality intellectual. You know, let me speak as an insider. I can do this. I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister, okay? We love to intellectualize our spirituality. We love to memorize things. We have big blue books. We have doctrines that we we love to hide in. And so we, we make this mistake That if we get those T's crossed and those I's dotted, we got the spirituality stuff figured out. It's a box we check, and it's a false substitute to real spirituality. So maybe it's not busyness, it's not comfort, it's not ambition, it's not control. For some of us, it's just unbelief. If we're honest with ourselves, we're like, Rue, that stuff you described and that whole paradigm for spiritual renewal, I don't really believe Jesus can do that in my life. I don't really believe I can experience that. For some of us, it's pride. You want to be able to do this on your own. You want to be able to to fix and generate spirituality without the help of God. I think for the vast majority of us, it's shame. Here's what I mean by that. Week after week, you hear a sermon. And you do your best to somewhat apply it to your life, but you never are completely doing it. 
And then you might go to a women's Bible study. You might go to a men's thing during the week. You might go to a community group and you're actually digesting a ridiculous amount of information. And as you like genuinely try to apply all that stuff out, you don't have enough time and you kind of mess up and you fail all along the way, right? And that doesn't include your normal sinful patterns in your life and the normal cravings and desires of your heart. And what happens is that stacks up on you one day after another after another as you just kind of tumble around in your Christian life just like me. And so you start going, I think something's wrong with me. Maybe this Christianity stuff works for other people, but it's not working for me. I'm not enough. See, the, our deepest parts are supposed to be changed by the power of the gospel. And our deepest parts has a different message. You're incomplete. I mean, if people knew who you really were, they wouldn't like you. Your spirituality is fraudulent. It's incomplete. It's insufficient. The negative messaging in our hearts can be rather severe and not penetrated by the gospel. And so we begin to think the gospel is not true for me. Even if intellectually or theologically we believe it to be true, existentially we're like, gosh, I think I'm the exception. Whether that's uttered or unexpressed. The good news is in this passage, we're not stuck with the problems of our spiritual renewal. But Paul offers both a practice and a power for that practice. So let's look at the practice. The first is honesty. Here's what I love about this prayer. Paul prays this for the church. And it's like giving this wide open door for all of us to acknowledge, yeah, I don't do spiritual renewal really well. The very fact that he had to model it and pray for it, and this is, you could tell, like a regular prayer for him, encouraging the church in Ephesus to do it, is because he gets they don't really do it very well. In American Christianity, just like Asian Christianity, we feel this need to put up a front that's just going okay. And the reality is when it comes to spiritual renewal, something is challenging, is swimming in God's love for us. A lot of times we have no idea how to do that. And it's safe to go, I don't know. But honestly, if we don't say, I don't know how to do this, or I'm not doing this well, or this is not being experienced in my life right now, you're never going to learn how to do it. So let me go first. The whole reason I picked this passage is I'm in a season right now where I'm not experiencing the power and the love of Jesus to the degree that I want. And I need spiritual renewal. How about you? Are you in the practice of being honest with your peers, with your friends, with your family about your need for spiritual renewal? Secondly, it's humility. This prayer is to be done to the Father. The Father that gives definition to all families of faith. The Father who who has adopted us into his family, that has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ, who's a good father who wants to give us great gifts. And humility is going, Dad, I can't do this by myself. Actually, I can't do this at all. And I desperately need you to do this in me. Honesty, humility. But it's a prayer. There's a reason Paul gives us this prayer. This is something we need to pray every day. I won't go into the examples because I'm running out of time, but Hudson Taylor, the great missionary in China, he had a simple prayer he prayed every day that took 15 seconds. But this is something we're encouraged to beg for and plead for together. Fourth, repentance. In verse 14, Paul says, I bow. Now that 
That isn't very striking to a modern audience, so let me unpack this for us. In that time when people prayed, they prayed standing. That was the custom of the church during that time. So to bow or to kneel was to show you're really serious. Like this is like a big deal prayer, right? So for Paul to bow and to state that in this is saying, this is like, this is time to double down. This is time to get really serious. This is something worth bowing over, kneeling for. So how's that connect to repentance? Repentance is turning away from all, turning away from all those substitutes we have for Jesus. It's where we're double-minded. It's where we're saying, hey, God, I want this, but rather we're just holding on to something else. It could be a desire. It could be a pattern in our life. And so repentance is going before Jesus going, God, it's all yours. Every bit of it. I need you to take these things from me. I want you to have full persuasion in my life. See, sometimes it's really hard for us to get filled up with God because there's things we're not willing to let go. And so to be undouble-minded, to be single-minded, is to literally go before God saying it's all yours. So honesty, humility, prayer, repentance, community. I love verse 18. You're to pray this with all the saints. This is corporate prayer. This is corporate life. This is what we do together in the body of Christ. Now, this is a common theme that's preached from Orangewood, so I don't feel the need to belabor this. But what I want to do is camp out right here on this last one, which is meditation. Again, Paul calls us to comprehend, to grasp the love of God. So Tim Keller has this quote on meditation that I really love. And since I work for him, I feel like I need to quote him at least once every time I preach. So here it is. I got it in. If you're listening to this, Tim. Meditation is thinking a truth in and thinking a truth out until the idea becomes big and sweet. Moving and affecting until that reality of God is sensed in the heart. When I was a college student, I had a really grace-centered college pastor discipling me. He said, Rue, your theology is like mathematics. And meditation makes that mathematics into apple pie. That really helped me. Because I love, I was so good at my mathematical understanding of God, but it wasn't something I could taste and enjoy and sink my teeth into. And what you do with meditation is you take what you know about the love and grace and the beauty of Jesus as you think about it and you meditate on it. And you think it out so it becomes big and sweet, moving and affecting until it becomes a reality, real, more real than anything else around you. And you can sense its beauty and loveliness on your heart. Now, as helpful as all these practices are, honesty, humility, prayer, repentance, community, meditation, you need a power for those practices. And what I love about this passage is Paul anchors you in that power in this passage. In verse 17, he gives us this objective reality, being rooted and grounded in love. What's clear is we are rooted and grounded in love, but I love these metaphors that Paul's using here. It's both biotanical and architectural. He's saying the roots of your spirituality, it's not you, it's Jesus himself. As if you're a plant and you've been literally planted in the heart of Jesus. Or to say it more appropriately, you grew out of Jesus. And you're found, your root system is him himself. Or another way of using this metaphor is you're grounded in love. This is architectural, saying that Jesus is the literal foundation you're building, you are built on. He is your foundation. He is your root system. So what's Paul saying in this passage? If you have any hope... If enjoying spiritual renewal, it's not about your activity per se, 
but soaking into your roots. It's leaning into your foundation. It's throwing yourself into the very thing that you already have. Going back to that meditation idea. Meditate on this. That your life is rooted in the massive love of Jesus. This church has an amazing missions program. I've been around a lot of churches in North America and in Asia over the last two years. And what you do is really stunning. But if we're going to engage for some of you or sustain for some of you or grow your involvement in this missions program, it's the gospel, isn't it? But it's not the gospel in some abstract way. It's spiritual renewal. To the degree you grow spiritual renewal dynamics in your life, in communities, to the degree you're going to be on mission for Jesus in this world. And it's absence, a joyful desire to be on mission for God where you live, work, and play and around the world is an absence of spiritual renewal. Where are you? What's the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now? What's your next step? Today's a new day. Today is a day for some of us, or for maybe most of us, to reset our lives in the gospel itself. To, with humility and honesty, to anchor ourselves in the very foundation of our life, Jesus himself, and experience a fresh wave of his love in our life, that we may joyfully be on mission for him forever. Let's pray this together. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us Christ, that our life is hidden in him, that all spiritual blessings that are from him or in him are for us, that we have this ridiculously large bank account called his love and life that we get to draw upon all the time. Lord Jesus, would you be gracious to us and help us to experience a fresh wave, an experience of spiritual renewal. Would you help us to trace out the magnitude of your love, be filled with your fullness, and would you be more real to us than our neighbors and our friends sitting right next to us? And Lord, would you do this for your own glory's sake, that we may be men and women and children that look more like you and are compelled by your love of grace to share with anyone we come around. And we pray this in your blessed name. Amen.